I think uh, Rocky the raccoon walks away with the movie. But I think there's so many characters in there that are beloved for other reasons, uh, you know, like Vin Diesel as Groot, you know, who all he gets to it's say is, Vin I am show. Groot. It's the Vin Diesel <laughs> show. And I kind of love that juxtaposition. You know, he's so brash and over the top in, you know, the Fast X, or the Fast movies, Fast and Furious franchise. But here, all he gets to say is, I am Groot, but he manages to make that work as um meaning more than just what it sounds like you know what as an actor i, I would be like so envious like getting a big paycheck and then you have to memorize your dialogue <laughs> <laughs> i'm not an actor but i know that line and, and then the challenge for the actor would be how much variation to work into it and he actually uh -huh. does he, he gets a lot of fluctuations a lot of intonation differences so he works that line really well. he earned his paycheck in other words Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about two of the summer blockbusters that are still in the theaters, one being Fast X and the other being the latest Guardians of the Galaxy installment number, what is it, Mike, 5,000? Uh, but <laughs> let's start with Fast X, which I want to say first off I saw in Screen X which I highly recommend if you are a fan of this franchise because the Screen X just puts you in the movie and there's so much going on in the movie. I think it really added to the experience to feel, you know, like you were literally sitting in the cars, you know, with all the crazy stuff going on. But Mike, where do you want to start with Fast X? Well, there's a lot going on and there's nothing going on. It's one of those hollow spectacles, if, if you will. And again, this summer movie phenomenon, at one point, it would have been easy to talk about this by way of, you know, summer blockbusters. But the kind of film we're talking about, actually the two films we're talking about today, this is now a year-round phenomenon, isn't it? There's not quite that demarcation there used to be. And, and so um, in that sense, it's just you know yet another installment here. This is a series, the Fast and the Furious series. It goes back 22 years. We're all sort of dating ourselves when we, when we talk about that. And my feeling is that it's really like literally spinning wheels at this point. And we can go into more detail, but one of the things that actually on the one hand, held my attention because if you have enough noise and enough explosions and enough whatever, yeah, you know, it, it jolts me in my seat. But but what has struck me about this series in particular and in a more general way is that the shooting style of it, if you're going to watch it, watch it the way Marie did. I mean, I, I didn't. Maybe I would have been better off getting that full immersion treatment. <laughs> I, would have, I would have collapsed on the floor on the way out, I guess. But, you know, maybe that's the way to watch it. But what I'm getting at is this. Think about technically how it's shot. If you're going to watch it, it's all about car chases and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yet the way it's shot, the, the camera work and particularly the editing. And I know I, I tend to overuse this expression, but when I say like edited in a blender, it's this really quick cuts. And it gets to the point where you can't even quite tell like who's who and what's what. And, and there have been other movies where like it could like in, in the, the Ben-Hur remake where you don't even know who's winning the chariot race, which is a, a crucial problem. Right. But but here it's that it gets so chopped up that that the, the races start to lose any kind of visual coherence. It's not just that they they violate the laws of physics. And we've all sort of enjoyed that with this series. I mean, some of the stunts and the cars jumping over other cars, you say, oh, come on, oh, brother, and this and that. But you kind of laugh, you chuckle, you, you eat more popcorn, it keeps you with it. But when you can't even quite follow that, I think it's taking that approach to such an extreme that it becomes just a, a kind of uh, visual goulash, if you will, all these elements just tossed together and not very tasty, actually. But ironically, what also happens here is 
there isn't even, I think, quite as much of the race, what I call race footage, as I would want or expect. I mean, for a film that runs 141 minutes, you'd think there'll be some long car chases. A lot of it's actually given over to criminal intrigue of various sorts, which is a lot of hoo-ha, right? Like, who really cares? And another one is, you know, threatening the world scenarios. There's that. But then also there's the mushy stuff, the sentimental stuff. And these actors, for the most part, should not indulge in that. I know they want to be taken seriously as actors. I know they want to give more substance to the series, yada, yada. And yet, push come to shove, I don't watch it to see Vin Diesel, you know, tearing up. I don't want to see that particularly. He's at his best when he's behind the wheel and driving. When he gets into the mushy stuff, I'm moving in my seat, I'm shifting. I never leave the theater or close my eyes, but I'm tempted to. It's like, oh, get me through this scene. You know, I will, I will, I will like pay for all my sins, but get me through this scene. And and this movie, I think, is full of scenes like that that are meant to milk the emotions. And some of them are excruciating, however well-intentioned they might be, and you know, also sincerity on the part of scripters and actors, it can be difficult to watch some of that stuff. What do you think? Because I found it actually painful to watch those scenes. I agree with you 100%. And I want to add that the word family is said 56 times in this film. It is really all about the action. That's the only reason anybody goes to these movies. I have seen every one of these in the franchise, partly because my husband is into cars And early on in the franchise, he would say, well, you know, I want to see it just to see what's latest in car buffery. And I also, you know, I make my husband sit through all kinds of talky films and where they're talking about relationships. Eventually he'll say, you know, I need to see something with a robot or a car chase in it. He is the audience for this kind of movie. And so we did go and and he was enjoying it for the most part. But even he at some points was saying, oh, come on. Because it's just ridiculous, some of the things that they do. But I mean, I think that's part of the fun. It's like a a living cartoon where the laws of physics don't really apply if the action scene could be really cool. But you know what? That kind of fun can wear thin when you go the other side of two hours. And and it just like enough already, you know, like when you feel like the film has had its climax, that's it, time for denouement. No, 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 another chase, another wrinkle in the plot. That's where it's just too much. I think the series started to lose steam, if I can put it that way, around a decade ago when Paul Walker died. Because the early installments really were, if you were a car buff, I'm not, but I can acknowledge it. If you were a car buff, what are they driving? How does it handle? Who's winning this? There was some semblance of of connection. It was tethered somewhat, however loosely, to reality. And then just got more extreme, you know, long films and ridiculous violations of the laws of physics. And now in, in, in installments like the one we're talking about, the mushy family stuff. Like you, I didn't actually count. Sometimes I'll do that in a film. I didn't actually do that, but I, I believe there were at least a few dozen family references. You counted every one of them. God bless you for that. But the, that's where the film, even if you go with that, it's like too much of it, right? You just feel like, okay, I get it. Families, because the dialogue is oftentimes quasi monosyllabic. It's like, well, family is everything, you know, that kind of thing. Well, yes, I agree with that. I buy Hallmark cards, you know, <laughs> I'm with that. <laughs> but how many scenes do you need? And you know what happens too is, when you do get some really good actors in it, they're not only wasted, it's distracting. Like, for instance, Rita Moreno, the great Rita Moreno, plays Dom's grandmother. And she's in it so briefly. It's just a few minutes. But for those few minutes, like, oh, that's Rita Moreno. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tearing up, right? I'm, I'm getting gushy. But it's in those family scenes. And it's so squandered that it actually is a distraction. Because if I'm going to go with all the nonsense in this film, I don't want some touchstone of reality and of great film history and yada, yada. And that's what happens here. You get actors like that that you like, 
you know, in addition to the principal cast, and it's like, oh, she's here, she's gone. And what's weird here is for a film this long, characters like that will pop up. And I'm like, I mean, totally disappear. It's like, well, did she take a vacation in Europe or what? You know, if it's all about family, where's the family? You would expect like, a you know, a, a big reunion at a certain point. And the film verges on that of like tossing all these family elements and recognizable actors and, and then like yanking them away because you're on to the next explosion or, or car chase. So they're not even very well woven into the plot. And that's where it's not only distracting, it's actually borderline irritating. It's like, if you're going to sign an actor like that, and even if she's only working a few days, get some mileage out of that, you know? Well, maybe she was in some great stuff and they had to edit it down because they were already over the time limit. Let's also say that Rita Moreno looks like a million bucks, even for the short amount of time that she's she's on the screen. But, you know, you, you've hit on one of the, things that makes the movies fun to watch is the cast of characters that go through it's every all kinds of people that you know i mean i love jason statham and he you know this is this is a complete jason statham kind of a movie you know the sort of strong quiet guy who is constantly getting into fights and stuff i mean it's he has to be in it it's nice to see charlie's there on michelle rodriguez is a regular from the series but i mean let's talk for a minute Mike, about that fight scene, which apparently the two of them did. They filmed it without a director. It's so over the top. It's it's kind of like those fights in, you know, uh, old Westerns where, you know, the fight starts in the bar and they tumble out you know, the plate glass window and they're still, you know, hitting each other with chairs and and bricks and, and you know, whatever comes to hand. You know that in real life, one hit, you're on the floor. That's it. They keep having these crashes and, you know, falls and blows and they just keep fighting it's so unbelievable you know what in a generic way and and i i love watching movies in this respect even if i don't love the movie you know they're gonna the guys are it's gonna be two guys typically and and the good guy the bad guy and they're duking it out and they have all this high-powered armaments everything there but then but at the climax of them what how does it end well they're on top of a skyscraper they put down their guns. They actually put the guns down on, on, on the roof. And then they go mano a mano because that's how real men fight. Right. And whether it's a fist fight or martial arts or some combination. And then, as Marie says, it's like it's like blow after blow. It's longer than like a 10 round boxing match. And they just keep going with it. And then miracle of miracles is that, you know, neither of them seems to have many bruises by, by the end of that. Even if the de- dead guy is dead. Uh, you know, everyone at that point, it's over. But then the hero, of course, smiles. And then the Damon in the one is he walks down the street with his reunited family that have been kidnapped by the bad guy and, and a film like this don't you think a film like this is basically in that in that ballpark it's that kind of a film where you know family's everything and if you threaten my family because think about what's motivating the bad guy here and we'll talk a lot about the bad guy uh, Dante Reyes is the character name uh, Dom the Vin Diesel character had actually killed Dante's father. I think it was in in Fast Five, so it's a few episodes back. And now, you know, Dante wants to get his revenge. So how do you get your revenge? Well, you go after the good guy, Dom, and you go after his family. And and so it's that same basic template. And and, and even though, you know, Bruce Willis has retired from acting at this point, it's the kind of role that you would expect him to see in a movie, right? Like somebody's taking his family. And and I guess if he's not available now, you know, have Liam Neeson or somebody Mm -hmm. could step in that part. But it's such a familiar storyline that I think, you know what, if you want to be a a heroic figure here, you're probably safest if you don't have any family at all, ironically, because no one can kidnap your wife if you don't have a wife, right? So you might be safe that way. Actually, you make me think of Kaiser Soze in um, The Usual Suspects for that last comment. But you're absolutely right. So let's talk about the bad guy. 
he gets this wonderful line, never accept death when suffering is owed. I mean, that's just so out of, you know, the Marvel universe, even though we're not in the Marvel universe. We're in the marvelous universe where physics is suspended in service of great stunts. So I have to say, I think my favorite scene was dragging the bomb around. (laughs) I mean, just the, it's so comic book-like. It's so Saturday morning cartoon-like, but with adults and guns and and actually Do you know what actually bothered me about that? I realize I'm watching essentially a live action cartoon, not to take anything too seriously other than family. Uh, And and so as as I'm watching it, you know, the bad guy's plot, and it is ludicrous, it's Looney Tunes stuff, but he's got this bomb that he's taken to Rome and it's going to sort of like roll through the streets and take it to the Vatican. I honestly was so upset by that at the level, how can you set off a bomb like that in Rome and on the Spanish steps, no less? And, and I was getting like sort of worked up that way. So it was almost like the, like the art historian or architectural preservationist in me was getting outraged. So those, those scenes actually kind of got me unsettled in a way I don't think the film intends to have us unsettled. Now, you might just say that's my quirky response. But I think this is a case where if you really want to touch on real world uh, feelings like family, uh, what about real world architecture? Please don't go after that. Go go to some nondescript city where I don't know it and don't care that much. Uh, It's it's just, you know, another mini mall or something, you know, take it out, a strip mall or something. But um, let me ask you about joking aside on that. Do you think that that's a a worthwhile um, concern to have here? My feeling is, you know, if you're really going to have this is a film like, like many uh, similar films that touches down in many, many cities, you know, London, Rio, you know, you name it, it it's, it's there, New York. Uh, but when you actually have like famous landmarks that are threatened. Now, let me let me push my argument further. Let's say now that we have a new World Trade Center in New York, what if a story like this one, not that this one does this, but what if a story like this were to somehow have a bomb rolling towards the, the rebuilt brand new World Trade Center in New York? Isn't that going to set off some rather distracting thoughts in viewers that might go beyond what the cartoon intends? What do you think about that? You know, should it just be silly ha-ha stuff? But then if you have like real threats, real buildings, recognizable buildings. I think the uh, the choice of Rome was probably strategic because of the very thing that you said. It's not just that he's going this you know villain is going to get his revenge and hurt people and architecture. It's irreplaceable things, the cradle of Western civilization, Italy and Greece. So I think that's kind of primal. I think that's why they. I think that's why they did it. But but do they really intend to upset us in the way I was getting upset? I thought with a film like this, would you want to have a private screening for Pope Francis to show him the movie? <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure he's not a fan of the Fast X, um, but who knows? Who knows what he does with that Pope mobile when nobody is looking? I also want to give a shout out to Helen Mirren because, again, she looks like a million bucks, too. Don't blank or you'll miss her. Yes, it's very fast and it's it's not a substantial role. But like I said, that's kind of one of the pleasures of watching the movie is, you know, you get to see The Rock, you get to see Helen Mirren, you get to see Charlize Theron, you get to see Jason Statham. I mean, it's a who's who of some of my favorite actors. So I did enjoy it on that level. I also enjoyed it as a, you know, car buffery movie, like all of the crazy things you could do with cars, if cars could do way more than they actually can. Do you know what? It almost verges on being a Transformers movie at a certain point. It really <laughs> does. It? it really does. Like, like, how much can a car actually do as opposed to what it's doing in the film? Yeah, I think you've actually touched on something. And, you know, we probably shouldn't give anybody any ideas. 
So let's move on to a movie that I really, truly loved, which is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Now, Mike, I don't know how you feel about, I mean, we've talked many times about how many versions of these universes are we expected to visit. But this one, I just thought, hit all the right notes. I just thought it was a very well put together movie. But I want to make sure I mentioned that the film sets the record for the most makeup appliances used in a single film having more than 23,000 prosthetics used across more than 1,000 actors. So what's underneath all of that makeup, Mike? Well, let's just say I, I had less enthusiasm for it. I wouldn't use the word love exactly. It's interesting that it's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, uh, as if we're reading movies, uh, at least reading about them. Uh, this is the promised final film in a trilogy, so I'm praying that it is the, the final one there. Um, I really was not that enthusiastic about it at all. However, there are some things in it that, that work quite well. For instance, the, the raccoon known as Rocket, uh, voiced by Bradley Cooper. I mean, there's some really good voice work, vocal work that way. You know, they have some good actors like Chris Pratt and Bradley Cooper who really are appropriate for, for the characters they're playing. And so even if I'm not enjoying the film, I feel like, you know what, it matches up the way it should in terms of what I'm watching and, and what I'm hearing. And, and that's something. But let me push you on this one. What is it exactly that you like so much about it? This sounds silly, but I really liked the story. I was completely invested in what was going to happen with all of these characters. And I think uh, Rocky the raccoon walks away with the movie. But I think there's so many characters in there that are beloved for other reasons, uh, you know, like Vin Diesel as Groot, you know, who all he gets this to say is, I am show. Groot. It's the Vin Diesel <laughs> show. And I kind of love that juxtaposition. You know, he's so brash and over the top in, you know, the Fast X of the Fast movies, the Fast and Furious franchise. But here, all he gets to say is, I am Groot, but he manages to make that work as um, meaning more than just what it sounds like. You know what? As an actor, I, I would be like so envious, like getting a big paycheck and then you have to memorize your dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an actor, but I know that line. And, and then the challenge for the actor would be how much variation to work into it. And he actually uh -huh. does. He, he gets a lot of fluctuations, a lot of intonation differences. So he works that line really well. He earned his paycheck, in other words. But I would love to actually see the shooting script. Can you imagine, Ray, where you're looking at all the dialogue and then every time you get it to Groot, it's the same line. But I understand, <laughs> you know, and even though I didn't, I didn't like the film at all, I, I can appreciate what you're saying in that there are actors that we know from this and from other things. And and they are well cast here. They're well suited to, to, to the characters they're playing. So I, I can see that point. I also think this movie uh, or this franchise, the Guardians one, is more popular than some of the other Marvel movies because once, I mean, I knew I was going to go see it, but almost everybody I talked to wanted to go see it. Family members, friends, everybody I know was really interested in this movie coming out, which really surprised me. Again, I saw it in Screen X. So it was fun for some of the scenes where you're hurtling through space or you know, they did a good job of making the world they were creating seem realistic and you could really feel like you were in it. And I brought my sisters with me to see it. And we, um, one sister had never seen Screen X before. So she was very impressed with that sort of surround visuals. Uh, did you see it with with uh, 3D or anything extraordinary, Mike? No, no, no. I, I saw it not only flat, very flat, you know, <laughs> <laughs> nothing extra as, as, as I watched it. And as you point out, you know, it is in its own way all about family, too, isn't it? 
and that, that Guardian's family. So whether this is the final installment, as they say, in, in a trilogy, it doesn't mean that it won't spawn other spinoffs. These uh, characters, if you will, have popped up and will again, I'm sure. Think about the Avengers, uh, Infinity Wars. Think about, you know, Avengers or other series where uh, I have a feeling we haven't seen the last of them. Let's put it that way. And I think that's one that's one aspect of the, the, the Marvel universe is that there's so many multiverses now, that, you know, percolating that, that, you know, even when characters are killed off sometimes, they, they aren't really. They, they pop back in one way or another. You get different incarnations of them, if you will. And again, in a financial sense, in a box office sense, it, it, you keep priming the pump. You always have more material that way. Um, sometimes for me as a viewer, I want what I would consider still an old fashioned closure. You know, sometimes I want it to feel like, OK, if it's a trilogy, let it end here. But whereas, as you know, so many of these films in the final scenes, what they're doing essentially is setting you up for the next installment. Which, which, and that's why we sit through those endless end credits, because we, we, we want that little uh, treasure near the end to let us know what's coming next. But um, there's something to be said for the opposite approach, which is that, you know, you have a fully developed storyline and there's a sense of closure and you don't look for a sequel. And I know I'm getting on a soapbox with this, but, you know, I really don't want a sequel to Gone with the Wind. I don't want a sequel to Casablanca. I don't want sequels to any number of things. And everything has been the equation is totally flipped at this point. Almost everything, seemingly everything, at least this kind of film, sets you up for the next one. How do you feel about that? Because I know if you really like a series, yeah, you get you get all hepped up, don't you? Because, you know, we're looking forward to the next one in a year or two. But my sense, and I know I'm not a fan of these films, my sense is just that, you know, let it let it end at some point. Let it close out. Well, what I'll say about that is if they are tempted to spin it off into endless capillaries of other stories, this was a graceful exit if they decide to leave it there or if anybody involved decides they don't want to make any more of these movies. I did want to ask you about the, the fact that this is different from other superhero movies in that in all the other superhero movies, you have a central character who is in some way glorious, super buffs like uh, Gal Gadot or, you know, Superman or any of those, like Jason Momoa, for example. Whereas the Guardians are kind of this ragtag group of uh, underdogs. And I think that pulls in more. I don't know. I think that's that's the reason why more people than I expected were eager to see it. I mean, I see all these things because I, I feel like I, I have to keep up. But um, what do you think, Mike? Do you think the the nature of the characters makes it more, makes the movies more relatable? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I have thought about this. These are long movies, so it gives me plenty of time to think about them as I'm watching <laughs> them. So having thought about that, it really is essentially a team of misfits. You know, mm -hmm. within the animal kingdom, if you will, various species and permutations, you don't even know what to call some of them, right? Whatever they are, but these various critters that are all brought together. And, and as a team, they're very, very effective. And one thing that the series does well, to its credit, is that it is a team effort. I mean, they have individual strengths and quirks and what have you, but the fact that they do work together, and I think by way of like audience identification, I don't have to feel like I'm identifying with a single superhero character, thinking, gee, what... You know, she's gone to the gym and I haven't, you know, or I might feel like less than that. And I can I can like vicariously imagine myself as that superhero. But I, you know, at the end of the day or the end of the film, realize I'm not. Uh, but this is a film where where the characters are so quirky and just sometimes like so misbehaving in various ways that I think as an audience member, it tends to bond you a bit more. You feel like, hey, I could be part of that team. You know, I wasn't the fastest kid on, on the squad, but, you know, I could still be part of this team. And, and I think, you know, I, I'm assuming that's a conscious decision on their part, because you're right, there is an avid fan base 
for this. And I think it might well be that people just feel like they could be part of the crew. Right. Because you don't even have to be human. You could be a tree with, with one line. Well, that lets me in. <laughs> are you are you upholding uh, all the all the tree people over there and the ants? From but that can be some, that can be part of the fun of it too. Is that it's an expansive vision. You know what? It's almost like anyone. It's so inclusive that you know anyone could join this team, if you will. You don't you don't have to go to like to a superhero school or something. And it doesn't just tap into the the other template of like an ordinary person who acquires extraordinary skills. Because there, you, at a certain point, you do have to, whether it's a spider biting you or something, something happens to you and you go to the superhero stage. Here, you don't have to worry about that. You can be an ordinary, whatever, an ordinary tree or a raccoon or whatever, you know, and then somehow be part of the team. And also, and, and although I find it sometimes a bit tiresome, with all that cast of characters, it lends itself to that kind of snappy banter, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. The kind of back and forth concept. To me, it wears thin after a while, but I can understand the appeal of it, that it's like this kind of snarky dialogue all around. But ultimately, yes, it's about a family of misfits and they're all working together. And, you know, they're going to save what the galaxy, the universe, who knows at this point. Plus, you get to fly those those cool spaceships, very reminiscent to me of Star Wars. And also in that kind of uh, look at the galaxy where it's sort of a Star Wars cantina writ large, you know, they have a lot of fun with making odd looking characters that you meet throughout the movie. It's a really good observation. Think of when the first Star Wars came out in 1977, all the commentary about about the cantina, the barroom scene, because it's like throughout the universe, this is like the United Nations of creation, right? All the different critters out there. And they can all belly up to the same bar, if you will. Some of them don't even have bellies, but they can all belly up to the same bar. And I think Guardians of the Galaxy quite self-consciously is, is working that sort of Star Wars mode. And that's, a, you know, again, creatively, that's a smart decision. I mean, it's worked for the series. So in, a, in the way these movies are usually uh, made, Chris Pratt would be the star and, you know, front and center in every scene. But really, uh, it's Bradley Cooper's uh, raccoon that steals the show. Uh, and I, I he was always my favorite, except for Groot, just because Groot's hilarious, because he only has one thing he can say. He does a good job. I know this sounds ridiculous. The raccoon does a good job of being the sort of a brash outsider who comes around to being very respected member of the crew and outshines Chris Pratt's character, which is, I, I found that surprising just in terms of normal narration. What do you think, Mike? Well, I, I, I don't find it surprising particularly because think about the, the Bradley Cooper character. Think about the, the raccoon. He's a showboat character. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that's a character who's, who's made to steal scenes. Again, the actor is really good in that role. So it's not surprising in that sense. And to Chris Pratt's uh, credit, I would say, um, he's part of the team here. And, and I think, again, that's, I don't want to sound hokey about it, but that's sort of team spirit. You know, where you don't feel like one actor has got to be front and center that way. And if anyone's going to get the most spotlight and the most laugh lines, let it be Rocket. You know, that that's the character who should have that. Uh, Groot gets laughs, but to talk about a one-joke character, I mean, there's only so much mileage you can get out of that one line, though he gets a lot out of it. Uh, but, you know, you wouldn't want to focus the movie on him, would you? I mean, that would really, imagine the script in that case, if on every page you had that line of dialogue, and the movie still runs two and a half hours. So it's good to have him pop up periodically with that. And, he, and they're really smart about that. He pops up periodically with that line, doesn't he? It can go for any number of minutes, and then he'll he'll have like two seconds of silence, and he comes out with that line. And yeah, I laugh too. 
Now, you know, what's funny about that is it reminds me again of Star Wars, where the Wookiee would make his noises and then Han Solo would know what he said. But it always sounded like the same sort of growls, where it's sort of the same thing with Groot. He says the same thing over and over and over. But, you know, there's people can understand what he means. Did you have that same Wookiee? Uh, connection. Well, I agree with you, but my fear here is that, you know, when we get the next Star Wars film, will Groot pop up as a character? <laughs> All this cross-fertilization of franchises. Now you have me worried about that. So maybe we shouldn't <laughs> say that out loud even. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't tempt fate like that. Anything else you want to say about this movie? Was there anything about it that you liked? Uh, I, I did enjoy some of the character interaction, as I've been saying. I mean, that kind of interplay. So again, I don't really care for the film particularly, but but it's enjoyable to have that kind of um, snarky banter back and forth. And yeah, that, and it's well-paced and, you know, it's well-timed in, in that sense. And even though it's the usual, you know, two and a half hour thing, it didn't seem overly long to me. It, it, it's actually fairly well-contained, you know, it doesn't spill on and on. And I think that's because the characters are well-realized. And as Marie's been saying, if you're a fan of this, these are people, you, I'm saying people, these are <laughs> creations you want to spend time with. Yeah, and I have to say, I, I want, really want to make sure I, I give Bradley Cooper credit for walking off with the movie because, you know, he he doesn't even get to play a, a person. It's it's a, a raccoon. I actually wonder if the fact that it's a raccoon was helpful because of the whole, you know, coming through the pandemic thing. We're all washing our hands and wearing masks. We're all raccoons, right? I actually hadn't thought about that <laughs> as I was watching, but now I will. <laughs> the only thing I'll think about <laughs> I can't wait to watch it again, actually. But that does bring us to the end of this episode. Uh, but don't forget to check out our other podcasts at atnhcc.podbean.com. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.